Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I want to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Our text today will come from 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Now yesterday, I will tell you this. As one of the only Tennessee fans, okay, yeah, let's just get this out of the way. In, in, in a house full of Georgia fans yesterday, we were at a fellowship, a house full of one of our Sunday school communities, had a chili cook-off, and, and the end result of the game worked out in one side's favor. And, and I decided, I thought I might even change the text of the sermon today to those great words of Jesus, uh, dear friends, let us love one another, <laughs> for love is from God. Uh, but even still, I, I, think, I think by the time we're done with today's sermon, you're going to see that today may be, this text may actually speak more to that um, strange series of events yesterday uh, than any other. And so I turn your attention now to loftier matters, shall we? So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were made all to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot would say, uh, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. I mean, if, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot, cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable, they are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. 
whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The reading of the sacred and holy word of the living God. May God now add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Let's pray together. God, we do now in this moment yield our mind's attention and our heart's affection to you. We deliberately gather around your, your, your written word, seeking to be strengthened by it, seeking to find our identity in it, seeking the transformation that your spirit knows we need. And we yield ourselves to you that you may do in us and with us and through us whatever it is that you as our Lord deem necessary. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. So last week we began a new sermon series, didn't we? We began a new sermon series called Be the Body. And as I stated last week, we are chasing one central theme, one central idea, a kind of running, driving truth. And it's this, that the church of Jesus Christ, the church is intended to be the visible presence of the risen Christ. That we are intended when we are living up to and into our identity very well, we are intended to be the visible presence of the risen Lord in this world. That means that our lived out lives, our lived out lives will be the evidence of his aliveness in the world. And as I, I, I shared last week a little bit, without that, without our lives being lived out to demonstrate his aliveness, there is no other way to proclaim with all sincerity the truth of his resurrection. Because the world will not take us at, at our word, and they shouldn't. They can only believe what they see in the changed lives that we live with one another and how we treat one another and how we treat others who are not part of our one another's. <laughs> So as I said last week, our call, our mandate, every time that we gather in this place is that we're nurturing a kind of Christ consciousness. And the thing behind the thing, or as we said last week, the why behind our what is this. You are part of the body. And someone is watching you. And the transformation that can take place in your life may be the, the catapult, the catalyst, the trigger for a transformation in the lives of those who you love and those with whom you're doing life. There is a lot riding on every time we gather in this place. So the church, as the visible presence of the risen Christ, 
is our theme through the entire six weeks in this study. But today, I want us to focus very clearly, very crisply on one particular kind of thought. I want to lay a thought out there for today only, and, and then we'll, we'll chase it. And as I do, before I lay the thought out, I think my, my voice is a little more booming than it needs to be, maybe. If you dial me back, don't mute me. Don't, I mean, don't turn me all the way down. Uh, I, I got to be heard, but, but maybe uh, soften it a little bit there, and, and it'll be easier to hear. Here is the thought for the day. It's not about you. It's not about you. But it kind of is. It's not about you. But it kind of is. It's not. It's not about you. This whole gig, this whole journey, this whole pilgrimage that we're making, this human saga that we are living out, it's not about you. <laughs> but it kind of is. And today, I want us to chop up the sermon in two halves. In the first part, I want to talk about what I mean when I say it's not about you. And when I say you, I mean me too. You know that a few years ago, Rick Warren uh, wrote a, a great best-selling book that started out with that kind of title, didn't he? It started out with that very phrase as the first opening sentence. He said, it's not about you. Then he goes on to say, the purpose of our life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. It is not about you. I don't have to tell you. It's no secret to any of us that our society is an increasingly selfish society. And, and either say amen or ouch, you know, one or the other. But we are. I mean, you don't have to look far to, to realize how self-centered, how self-serving, how self-inflated we become. Because it's all about me and my it's all about my comfort and my desire, right? Me, 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 me. An entitlement kind of society that is growing. In fact, we are on the verge of what might be described as a kind of narcissism. Narcissism, simply the definition of narcissism, the simplest one is this. It's, a, it's an overinflated sense of self. It's an overinflated sense of your ego, yourself, that it's all about me and it's all about my desires and wants and wishes, Right? It comes from Greek mythology. There was a young boy, a hunter, named Narcissus. One day he went down to the river and he saw in the river a reflection of his image in the water. And there's a picture of him right there. He's looking at himself in the water and the legend says that Narcissus, well, he fell in love with his image. <laughs> he fell so in love with his image that he couldn't bear the thought of leaving it, so he stayed there. And grew old and died, admiring his own image, absorbed with self. And, and though in our society, not all of us may be attracted to our own physical reflection, our own image, but we are becoming prone to be absorbed with our own self-interest. 
It's all about me, all about my. In an interesting book by the name, uh, by the title, Trapped in the Mirror, interesting, uh, Ellen Gollum, the author of that book, has this to say about the characteristics of narcissistic people, right? She says, they unconsciously deny an unstated and intolerably poor self-image through inflation. They turn themselves into glittering figures of immense grandeur surrounded by psychologically impenetrable walls. The goal of this self-deception is to be impervious to the greatly feared external criticism and to their own rolling sea of doubts. Now, don't point. But do you know somebody like that? Maybe they're in your family. Maybe you work with them. Maybe they go to school with you. The truth is we are all prone toward that direction. In another book, it's interesting that the title of the book has a very interesting subtitle. The title is The Narcissism Epidemic, but the subtitle is Living in the Age of Entitlement. And the two authors in this book, they work to describe um, the social impact publicly of societies that are being filled with narcissistic individuals. Now, follow the language there. As we become narcissistic more individually, our society then begins to unravel in curious ways. This is what they had to say. Narcissism is not simply a confident attitude or a healthy feeling of self-worth. Narcissists are overconfident and place little value on emotionally close relationships. Narcissism is actually a deterrent to success. Its long-term consequences are destructive to society. Can you just think about it for a minute? Imagine with me the end result. If every one of us, without, without gut-checking, without self-examination, without some kind of pumping the brakes, we, if all of us kept continually becoming more and more self-interested, self-focused, self-centered, then it becomes no mystery at all why it seems like the, the world around us is unraveling at the seams, right? I mean, unraveling at the seams. But here's the trouble. <laughs> if gone unexamined, if gone unchecked, there can be very little difference between the unraveling that happens out there and the unraveling that happens in here. We church folk live out there. And we too can be prone to self-interest just like anybody else. And here's the danger. When we bring, and, and see, we're conditioned. Every mechanism in our society is reinforcing the call to think about you and yours. At every medium that we have out there, every mechanism in our society is meant to reinforce and to condition within us from the time that we're, we're up here singing about wiggly worms, right? Like a moment ago. From the time we're that young, this conditioning that it's about how comfortable are you and are you happy? Are you, do you, are you satisfied? Uh, let's make sure that you get what you want and, and make sure everybody else does what they, they must do to make you get what you want. And, and we, we raise up a generation and then are, we're surprised that, that they're entitled. We're surprised that they act entitled. Well, the thing is, it creeps into the church as well. I remember when I was in Tennessee, uh, when I was in Tennessee, I, 
Oh, did I mention Tennessee? Sorry, I did. No, but when I was serving a church in Tennessee, all right, we're going to keep it Jesus here. Yeah. When I was serving a church in Tennessee, I remember I, I would go at the end of the worship service to the door at the back. We had a traditional kind of shotgun uh, building, and at the end of the benediction, I, I would scoot back and shake hands at the singular door that, that we would go out, and there would be a line, and we would... And, and to give you an example of the kind of conversations that took place there, you know, we had this one woman, and I just loved her. She was a sweet, uh, long-time church member, an elderly woman. She, and every Sunday, she said the same thing to me. Whether my sermon was wonderful or it was just, it, whether it tanked, whether it was just garbage, uh, she said the same thing. You gave a good sermon today, preacher. You gave a good sermon today, preacher. Every Sunday, you gave a good sermon today, preacher. Oh, thank you. Have a great day. See you next week. All right. Uh, one day, I had my friend come and preach, and she was the professor at Carson Newman. We were doing a series on Baptist heritage, and, and she did a great sermon. And, and at the door, I was shaking hands, and the woman came to me and said, you gave a good sermon today, preacher. You know? <laughs> okay, good morning. <laughs> Glad you could join us. But there was one member there who, um, let's just say, is not there anymore. Uh, and every Sunday, she made it a point to give me a play-by-play on her opinion about how things went. And she would tell me uh, what she thought about the music and about the song selection and about the sermon and how the prayer went and it was too long or too short and you shouldn't have used these words. And every Sunday at the door, instead of, hope you have a strong week, looking forward to seeing you, it, it would be, I didn't like the music today. And early in my ministry as my first pastorate during those days, and I was, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? And so I better change some things. So we change some things, make sure she's happy, make sure she's, she's satisfied. We want to make sure she keeps coming and is happy. The next Sunday, maybe she'd be happy, and maybe she was. But then the next Sunday after that, she'd say, uh, great, great music, but the sermon was, you know. Or the next Sunday, great sermon, but I don't like those songs. And after this went on for a particular number of, of months, I decided to own a different kind of language with her. She came, she came to the door, and one particular Sunday, she was not happy with really anything. And she said, I don't like that music that we sang today. I took a deep breath. I swallowed hard, and I said, yeah, well, I'm okay with that. She said, what? I said, because it wasn't for you. The song wasn't for you. And the sermon wasn't for you. And this hour was not for you. When we get here, we're here to serve an audience of one. And I hope you'll be with us next week to do that. She came a few more Sundays. But then not much more after that. When we gather as a church... When we gather as the body of Christ, we are up to doing something here that is different than the rest of the world. We are here to live up to and into an identity that you can't get anywhere else. And here we nurture what I'm going to call this morning a body ethic. A body ethic where we recognize every one of us, including the one doing most of the talking, must recognize that it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. But there's something powerful 
that can happen in the transformation of all of us when we recognize who else is in this room with us. And the text that we just read a moment ago lays it out so beautifully. I want to read the first two verses again. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Watch this. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. One spirit. Do you realize regardless, regardless of our backstory, whatever it was that got you into the room, there is nothing more important than what happens in this moment of transformation when we are here. Because in this moment, we drink from the same spirit. We drink from one common spirit that unifies all of us, even in the midst of diversity. And that kind of transformation is not asked for anywhere else. It's not possible anywhere else, but in the body of Christ. And there's nowhere where that is more visible or illustrative than in the early church. And I want you to, to remember some of the traditions of the early baptism rituals. In the second and third century, especially in the Johannine community, the com- the churches that, that specialized in the traditions of John, that followed the ways of John. And the Johannine community, when they did baptism, man, they really, they really took it seriously because they understood that at, at, the, at the core of it, the thing behind the thing with baptism is there is a transformation happening in me and I will never be the same when I step out of the waters. So for months, they would prepare and fast and pray and read and study and repent and lay out all of their their old ways. And then on the day of their baptism, some interesting things took place. The priest or bishop or pastor of that region would gather at a body of water. The church would be somewhere at a close distance, but out of sight. And the person who had now become a Christian would come to the waters and they would face the west. Now, I know, I think, I think that's actually west. If I'm Right, but we're going to pretend this is west to be sensitive to your geographical orientation in the room. We're going to pretend this is west. They would turn west and they would strip off all of their clothes. I mean, down to just what their mamas gave them. To symbolize the stripping away of an old life. Stripping away of my own individuality because I'm about to step into something called a body. And he strips away all of his clothes and he faces the West. And the priest says, do you renounce your old life, Satan, and the empty promises of this world? Listen to that language. Do you renounce your old life, Satan, and the empty promises of this world. And the candidate, the baptismal candidate would say, I so renounce them. And you know what they would do then? Spit. Spit in the direction of the West. To spit in the face of Satan, but to also be aware that your saliva mixed with the propulsion power of your air, your your wind, your breath, Those are the only things given to you at birth and you're even letting go of your original birth 
Because in a minute, you're about to be born again. They spit in the direction of the west and then they turn, literally acting out the Hebrew word shuv, which means repent. The word in Hebrew, shuv, literally means to turn from your old ways. When you repent, there should be a turning away from your old ways. And they turn to face the water and they step down into the water. And at that point, there's a variety of traditions that they could have practiced. In some customs, they baptize backwards like we do to symbolize the death burial and resurrection of Jesus. In some traditions, they did it by what's called effusion, the pouring of the water over the head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But many times, they would do it this way. The priest would mark a cross on the surface of the water, and they would be baptized forward, bowing in yieldedness, to their new Lord. As if to say, nothing else that I thought mattered matters anymore. None of my pursuits, my passions, none of my own personal desires matter nearly as much as your passions and your priorities and your pursuits. And they would be baptized and they would come out of the water and with their new identity, an assistant would give them a white robe emblematic of those white robes that we read about in the book of Revelation in that great multitude when we will all gather robed in white in great celebration. They're given a white robe and then they move toward a building or a, a, a gathering nearby where after they come out of baptism, they begin to hear singing. And the church <laughs> sings them into their new identity sings them into their new identity. And there's a feast and they eat and they drink of communion. And it reminds me of the text that we just read. For regardless of where they had come from, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Do you see the power in that ancient practice that we still practice here? That there is a a renouncing of my own priorities. There is a letting go of anything that would indicate that I am the Lord of my life. And I yield to the power of Christ's lordship and the transformation of his spirit. I drink freely of that one spirit along with the multitude of others who make up this body that we call the body of Christ. Mm. Powerful. Well, that is the ancient practice. But what I'm trying to convince you today, <laughs> what I'm trying to make an argument for today, my sisters and brothers, is that the ancient practice is the right now practice. Nothing changes. The body of Christ is intended to be the visible presence of the risen Christ. But it can't be the body of Christ if it's simply a collection of our bodies. But we make up a part of his body. That means we go where he went. We do what he did. We love whom he loved. We are the body of Christ. And something I want you to, 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 to consider this day is that from the earliest days, this body of Christ that I'm talking about has been, always has been, always should be a radically inclusive community 
of self-emptying love. A radically inclusive community of self-emptying love. This is the church. (laughs) Do you realize how radically inclusive the text was a moment ago when Paul said, hey, look, Jews and Greeks drink of the same spirit. Slave and free drink of the same spirit. Do you realize how polar opposite those, those groups were to the Jews? The Greeks were everything that represented what was unholy, uh, unreligious, uh, unrighteous. And Paul says, look, regardless of your backstory, if you drink of this common spirit, the spirit of Christ, you're part of this body. He goes on in Galatians to say the same kind of thing, but even with more eloquent and beautiful words. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, Nor is there any male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. According to Paul, none of the backstory matters as much as the right now story. Whether your backstory is filled with accomplishment or absolute failure, the grace in all this is that if you drink freely of the of the cup of Christ, if you drink freely of the spirit of Christ, then you are a part of this body and you have a place and you have value. And Paul is not making this stuff up. See, Paul talks about this because Jesus talked about this. Jesus demonstrated the same thing. Have you ever considered the the motley crew that Jesus gathered around himself? I mean, talk about polar opposites. Jesus called people to follow him like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Simon the Zealot was a part of a political party whose intention was to overthrow the government, to overthrow the Roman Empire. Simon the Zealot, that was his political party. But he's sitting at the same table with Matthew who gets a paycheck from the government, from the Roman Empire as a tax collector. And knowing this, Jesus puts both of them at the same table and says, here, share this. And yet they were drawn there, not because they agreed about their politics or about their position with the government or their ideas about where Rome should go and who should lead Rome and and what authority Rome has in our individual corporate lives together. No, they were drawn by something else. By the unifying power of self-emptying love. I mean, he, he, he drew John, the one that we call the, the beloved disciple, the one who many believe was more of a meek, quiet, introvert. He's the beloved disciple, kind of, kind of subdued. And he's sitting at the same table with a, a set of twins whose nickname was the Sons of Thunder. Outgoing, boisterous, sometimes obnoxious and they're both at the same table he called a fisherman and he called a doctor later on he gathered women around to to take leadership in the movement he welcomed those who were on the inside of religion like pharisees like like nicodemus and those who were on the outside those who were unclean because of their disease or their social condition and jesus made the point that at his table Everyone has a place, 
and everyone has value. Not because of who they are, but because of who's inviting them to the table. Yeah. When we are drawn to church, beloved, it cannot be because the preacher preaches okay or the, the choir sings beautifully. It cannot be those things. It must be because we are drawn by a transforming love that enables us to see one another through a different set of eyes. So that we see one another not as competition, not as a threat to our own uh, stature, our own stance, our own stability in this life, our own position, but we see each other as persons who have immense dignity and value and a sense of place here at this table. Not because we've proven it or earned it, not because we deserve it, but because we begin to recognize in one another the same grace at work that rescued us. This is why later when Paul is writing to the Philippians, he understands that, that they're facing a situation where they're competing with each other and they're, they're, they're bickering with each other and there's, there's this hierarchy kind of thing going on. And he says, look, no, no, here, here's my word to you in the Philippian passage. Do not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Wait, go back to that one, can we? Regard others not as equal to you, as, as you know, their rights and, and, and privileges, as you, but better than you. Consider the needs of others as better than your own. But in humility, regard each other. Uh, let each of you look not to the interest of others, or not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Beloved, to be a part of the body of Christ means that we're drawn here by a self-emptying love, a radically inclusive self-emptying love that transforms us so that we might be able to love in the same way. We've been known for this since our very beginning. Did you know that in the early church, one of the leading causes of conversions, the, the, the foremost um, cause of converting to Christianity. It was not one-on-one -on -one witnessing. It was not even martyrdom, which was a big, a big uh, a contributor to conversion. You know what the number one contributor was? Radical hospitality. We were known. Oh, that's, that's the community who welcomes everybody. That's the community who loves each other. That was our reputation. It wasn't, oh, that's the community that all think the same, believe the same, and, and, and vote the same. They all look alike. No, it was, that's the community that amid their diversity, they have found a way to unify through love. There was an ancient traveler named Rufinus who wrote about his experience. He was walking along, traveling in Africa, I'm sorry, in, in Egypt, which is in Africa, but in Egypt. And he comes across this community of believers. And he writes about their response. They had never met. He's a foreigner. He doesn't even belong to their community. And yet this is what he writes about his experience, his first encounter with this Christian community. Then we came to Natria, 
the best known of all the monasteries of Egypt, about 40 miles from Alexandria. As we drew near to that place, they realized that foreign brethren were arriving. They poured out of their cells like swarms of bees and ran to meet us with delight and alacrity, many of them carrying containers of water and bread. When they had welcomed us, first of all, they led us with psalms into the church and washed our feet and one by one dried them with the linen cloth they were girded with as if to wash away the fatigue of our journey. What can I say that would do justice to their humanity, their courtesy, and their love? Nowhere have I seen love flourish so greatly. Nowhere with such quick compassion and such eager hospitality. This is how we were known. We were communities that looked like the literal body of Christ. He felt as if he was actually in the company of Jesus himself because he was. Because that horde, that whole multitude of individuals had yielded their, their lives to a corporate body, to be a part of the whole body, recognizing that we all have value and we all have a role to serve the greater need. Later on, an African theologian, Tertullian, was writing about this. Tertullian was writing about how he had overheard a, a, a government official talking about Christians, talking about Christians, and this was our reputation. Tertullian puts it this way. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. Look how they love one another. They were known. We used to be known exclusively for the radical love and welcome and grace that we offered everyone and anyone all the time, always, because that's what Jesus would do. And if there was ever a time when we, the church, needed to embody the ethic of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, that time is right now. As the world around us unravels, they are looking for a model. They are looking for a way. And we are the people of the way. For we have found a way to abide with one another. And guess what? We don't all agree on everything. We don't. In the same way that we have always existed, there is diversity among us. But unity amid diversity. Are you with me? I mean, not only is there ethnic and cultural diversity. I mean, take a moment and look among us. We don't all look the same. But not only that, we don't all think the same. We, don't all, we certainly don't all vote the same. And we don't all pull for the same sports teams, just saying. <laughs> but the truth is, every time we gather with the 4D class, which we have a class underway now, sometime over the next four weeks, I will end up saying to them what I say to every 4D class, which is this. At Johns Creek, you will find somebody both on your right and your left. You will. Someone will be more liberal than you and someone will be more conservative than you and we like it that way. Because the truth is we have come to recognize here in this place that there is one unifying power among us that supersedes party affiliation, supersedes any kind of uh, opinion or allegiance or alliance. And that unifying power is our belief 
that we have drunk from the same spirit, that Christ is in you and Christ is in the person sitting behind you and before you and beside you. And the thing we recognize here is that it is not about you. (laughs) It's not about you. But it kind of is. Because if the truth is, in you, you abide with the power of Christ's presence, well, then the truth is, it's kind of about you. Listen to what he said in in, uh, 2 Corinthians. He said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is not from God and does not come... uh, and, and, and. Can I do that one again? This all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. But here's here's the beauty. If in you there is this treasure, then it is deserving of all of our attention. That means that a church must do and must organize in every possible way to empower and equip you to discover that treasure that you are carrying around in the clay jar of you. Because can you imagine what would happen if, if every one of us who make up the whole of the body were to discover the power of Christ abiding within us and allow that to live out through our, our life with one another? What our witness would be? This is why Paul said there's value in every part of the body, not just this part or that part. Because whatever your life trajectory is, that's unique to you. And you, as a part of the body, have a unique sphere of influence, a unique grouping of friends, a unique family. And to those individuals and those groups of people, for you to be a part of the body of Christ means that we are with you. And when you love the uncle that's hard to love and when you forgive the co-worker who just keeps on irritating you when you do acts of Christ-likeness we're doing them with you because we're not individuals alone we are the body of Christ pray with me God, today we simply want to confess to you that we, we, we sense the mystery of this thing. We sense the mystery of the body of Christ and that we've been invited to be a part of it, that we may understand in part. But today I pray that you would infuse within the heart of someone the capacity to respond to you and say, yes, yes, I will be a foot if you want me to be a foot. I'll be a hand if you need me to be a hand. I will be your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth. I will be whatever part that you, the head of the church, Christ, call me to be. Give somebody this day the courage to say yes. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.